0: The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest Fortnite Kegel Storm edition. It's Wednesday, August first, two thousand and eighteen. On today's show, Mission Impossible Fallout is along the way to its inevitable billion at the BO. Unexpectedly a critical darling. I can't wait to ask Dana if she's uh, going along with the consensus on this one. And then the troubled middle segment in which your hosts play Fortnite, the world's (coughs) most popular video game, and try to fathom its success with guest Dantea Price. And finally, we discuss Gwyneth Goop and a perfectly tuned Times Magazine profile by Taffy Brodesser-Ackner. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hey, Julia.
1: Hello, Steve.
0: And, uh, of course, uh, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana.
1: Hey, Steven.
0: I can't wait to get your reaction to uh, Mission Impossible Fallout. But first, uh, how about some summer strut fallout?
1: We had some amazing summer strut fallout. That was a really fun show, really fun list. We got a couple great emails from listeners, including one, from someone who runs like a exercise cycling class, like sort of a soul cycling type thing, who says she relies on summer strut to make interesting playlists. Definitely the closest I'm ever going to get to a team exercise (laughs) in a room cycling class. So I was very honored about that and thought that was potentially the best response until we heard from David Hume. Dana, do you want to tell us what David Hume had to say?
2: Yes, what David Hume had to say is maybe my single favorite fan mail, or I don't know if you'd even call it fan mail, just sort of response, listener response to uh, to one of our shows. And that's going some, because we've gotten some amazing letters over the years. Hi, a big thank you to Culture Gab Fest from my wife, Jillian, and our new baby, Lachlan. Jill went into labor on Wednesday night, Sydney time, just as the Summer Strut edition dropped. To get her through the hardest bit, Jill had the choice between an epidural or listening to Summer Strut. She went with Summer Strut. We weren't quite loping to it, but it turns out that the music bits time well with the hard bits of late stage labor. Shortly afterwards, Lachlan arrived. Thanks again. Oh, my God. Jillian, (laughs) why? (laughs) (laughs) That is truly, truly incredible. In fact, that's our blurb if we ever put out some sort of,
1: right? Better Uh, than an epidural. (laughs) (laughs) Although I think the only evidence we actually have here is once chosen in lieu of an epidural dubiously <laughs> <laughs>
2: we are truly honored jill and david in sydney that you you chose us for your epidural replacement and i feel like we should offer their son lachlan some sort of lifetime culture Gabfest fest benefit package
1: yeah free lifetime slate plus for lachlan and uh and david and jill seriously david email me if you want that yeah. and if we ever get back to australia i gotta meet that baby yeah absolutely We're going to hold him above our heads on stage like Simba in The Lion (laughs) King.
0: I got to say that that choosing the summer strut in lieu of uh, an epidural is some goop-worthy medicine right there.
1: I won't hear a word. I won't hear a word against this choice.
0: (laughs) All right. Should we dive in here? Please. Okay, Mission Impossible Fallout is an action spy thrill ride. It's the sixth installment in the MI franchise, starring Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt. This is the first one to be written and directed by the same person. It is therefore an auteur blockbuster, my favorite kind in this instance. The auteur is Christopher McQuarrie of Usual Suspects fame and many, many other movies since. He's delivered a far tauter, cleverer, funner movie than its predecessors, This one returns Cruz in a supporting cast of Ving Rhames, Simon Pegg, Rebecca Ferguson. Adding to the roster, Angela Bassett as head of the CIA. She's great. And Henry Cavill as her in-the-field surrogate. Anyway, why don't we listen to a clip?
1: I know what you're thinking. Maybe they're not here for you. Maybe they're just here for me. Are you willing to take that chance? (laughs) You have something I want. Right now, that makes me the only person you can trust to get you out of here alive. I think I'd like to go home now. (laughs) <laughs> that clip is so perfect. Well the best thing about that clip is that it is it is mission impossible encapsulated because it is a fight with an audience. It's like, Uh wish 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 with the blades and And then everyone in the car ah!" like this this whole that that is the whole movie is we're gonna do stuff and you're gonna freak out. But don't forget that it's preceded by hushed, intense whispering from (laughs) Tom Cruise (laughs) about
0: what he's about to do.
1: (laughs) And like an unpersuasively persuasive move, like he's meeting some badass arms dealer, broker person. And she seems quite in command of the situation and then somehow he convinces her through urgent whispering that she needs him for some reason. <laughs> Even though she's got her own switchblade and her garter belt, obviously. That was Vanessa Kirby, right? In the, the yes, female voice. The there. silver spider the white widow. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure.
0: You have flown so far beyond my first question, but I'm gonna I don't care. I'm gonna say it anyway. Um, all right. You may note, Dana Stevens, I did not give a plot summary, and I would uh, fail if I tried to. Is that because I have ADD, or does the movie...
2: I mean, I think with all of these M.I. movies, plot is completely beside the point. All you really need to know is that there's bad guys and espionage and Tom Cruise is going to solve all the problems somehow. And, uh, and that really is part of the fun of these movies. I mean, I think to back up a tiny bit, in case you're not familiar with the Mission Impossible movie series, I mean, the thing to me about it that's the most interesting is, A, how long it's been going on, right? This is the sixth one, but that's over the course of 22 years of making Mission Impossible movies. And it's not really the case that there was sort Sort of a first generation and then a reboot they've just been going steadily all this mm-hmm. time just like tom cruise and also of course that this is the the auteur driven uh action series right in in a way it's it's produced by Tom Cruise, executive produced, and very much under his aegis, right? So he's handpicked the directors for each one of the six installments. And they've all been kind of name directors, even sometimes kind of art directors from outside the action world. So it was, if I get it in order right, it was Brian De Palma, and then John Woo, and then J.J. Abrams, and then Brad Bird. And then these last two episodes have been directed by Christopher McQuarrie, who's sort of a longtime Tom Cruise, um, you know, writer, mentor, understander. He sort of gets the crew's ethos, having written several films for him and done rewrites on other MI films. So maybe that's too much information. But to me, it helps understand why Mm -hmm. these movies have a kind of, um, they have a mechanism that clicks into place. You know, they're not, they're not feeling around for what kind of tone to strike or, or what they're about. You know, they're not aiming for any kind of allegorical topical specificity. They really are just about delivering this kind of classic Tom Cruise action brand. And, uh, Mm And I'm not sure I agree with the critics who say this is the very best one yet, because I really love the, the Brad Bird installment, Ghost Protocol. I think it was number four. Someone correct me if I'm wrong on that. Um, but but it does deliver that, that Tom Cruise product very satisfyingly. And the fact that the stunts are practical, that almost all the stunts were done without you know CGI help and are actually being done by Tom Cruise is pretty astounding when you look at what these stunts are, which we can get into.
0: I note, Julia, that Dana dodged the question. Maybe you won't. Um, what do you think of this movie?
1: What fun! What fun! What a great time at the Wait, movies. Wait, how did I dodge it? I said the exact same okay, thing. Okay, fine, fine, I'm dodging <laughs> it too. I don't know. I felt like we, were, we needed your like high critical take. And so many movie critics on Twitter when they saw the advanced screening of this movie were like, oh, "Mission Impossible Fallout, a masterpiece. The greatest action you film of must all time." See.
2: No, I'm not one of those. I'm not one of those people. But I mean, I think in general that the whole series, Mission Impossible Fallout, is an astonishing accomplishment in the world of, of movie action.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, this movie was. So fun. It was so fun. And I was trying to figure out what it is about it that makes it feel distinct from other action movies. I mean, it is, I think, very well directed. You always know exactly what's happening, exactly what the stakes are, who's fighting who, why. And then you have the double sense of reality of the of the stunts being just less computerized than other stunts. And I will not profess to be an expert at like spotting computer, de- you know, I'm, I'm not the sort of person who looks at something on TV and it's like, why aren't we watching the high def channel or, uh, you know, th- why is my
2: motion smoothing on?
1: Yeah. Like I just don't, I'm not, I, I don't watch with that level of granularity to visual effects generally, but there is something that feels really different about these stunts that feels, uh, effortful and specific and, makes you believe all the nutso things that they're trying to do, remove people from submerged police vans and climb up strange, rattly elevators that apparently exist in the Tate Modern. Somewhat surprisingly, all the elevators looked very sleek and chrome the last time I was there and not like rattly shark cages going up a crazy... Um, smokestack or whatever. Uh, and you, so, so there's a precision and specificity to the stunts themselves. And then there is this legend, myth, ethos, reality. I don't know what that Tom Cruise is actually doing all the stunts, which I watched a bunch of stunt B-roll that showed some of the things he did. I'm sure he did a lot of it and also not some of the rest of it. I also saw poor Henry Cavill like on a motorcycle with no helmet in one of these shots and was like poor Henry Cavill. Like can you imagine showing up and Tom being like I'm doing this, I'm doing that and you're like oh, fuck. I feel, like riding a goddamn motorcycle myself. Like can't we just hire a guy? Fuck. <laughs> um even just in terms of insurance, he can't he can't be doing everything that they say he's no, doing. No, it's he's he, they, I mean the whole there I mean I'm this isn't even a spoiler because it's in the trailer. There's like a double helicopter chase finale where somebody in a broken helicopter is trying to chase somebody in a working helicopter and the guy in the working helicopter only needs to get away from the guy in the broken helicopter for like four minutes and then his ends will be achieved and instead he like stays engaged with the broken helicopter like why doesn't he just like fly up and out of the valley and like away from tom cruise's helicopter (laughs) there's a lot
2: of why didn't he just in here for example (laughs) why did henry cavill and tom cruise have to parachute into a disco in paris in order to perform their raid i mean it's a free country couldn't they just go to paris and pay the cover charge
0: dana it was a dark (laughs) drop into the country so foreign intelligence didn't know they were there
2: Sometimes you just got a parachute into a disco. (laughs) But I think one word that that Julia used is really key to the appeal of this whole series, which is effortful. And a lot of people, I think, have written about this in their encomia to the 56-year-old Wonder Bunny that is Tom Cruise, who I should I should say I do believe is doing a, a, a huger, much huger number of his own stunts than most actors do, even though there may be some fudging around the edges like he did, I think, learn to fly a helicopter for that scene. And I, he did, in fact, jump out of a plane 94 times or something to get the the very first scene right. But but the fact that you can sort of see the sweat upon his brow and that he he makes clear that you know it's his sheer force of will that's accomplishing these things gives him a very very different feel from sort of a James Bond suave effortless kind of hero achiever in the movies
0: yeah no it's a to- it's been it's been a sweat act from the beginning with uh, tom cruise um does anyone care that i loved this movie
1: oh yeah tell us what you thought steve
0: i did love it i i mean i thought it was terrific and i mean it was it, it struck me as you know sort of second times a charm that Macquarie had ideas about how to make a, a a big heaving, you know, franchise clunker like this sleeker and um, more genuinely engaging than that sort of action set piece, the kind of porno movie structure of it, you know, like banal filler action set piece, banal filler action set piece, um, and um, and he got it exactly right on the second second time around. So in addition to all of the obvious charms, including the sweat off of. Uh, Tom Cruise and the, you know, uh, charmingly and, and supporting cast and on and on and on. I think the thing that made this movie really, really work is that it's not Macquarie was very astute about this. It's not that making the action set pieces more gigantic and gigantically improbable, though that certainly happens in this film. And I agree that it's it seems to be taking place in, you know, our bricks and mortar world and not against the, you know, a green screen. But the what he what he really did is he each little set piece involves a mini usual suspects twist that's at least somewhat unexpected and gives purpose tautness cleverness um, um, to the action set pieces so you know setting up an expectation and um, and then upsetting it in this very deft way and so the movie's just pervaded with a craft crafts a craft person's intelligence, so you're engaged. I mean, from that opening, if you remember, the very, 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 very opening sequence of the entire movie is so clever. It's so beautifully delivered. Um, it it even imputes to Ethan Hunt slash Tom Cruise and in inner life uh, in in a plausible way. Um, the movie's just a terrific piece of craft through and through. I really really dug it. I really had a fun time.
2: Yeah, and it's true that there aren't many movies that do that well, and when they do, as Mad Max Fury Road did, which a lot of people are comparing this this movie to, it. P- people really sit up and take notice when they're those two things, practical stunts that are actual bodies and vehicles doing actual things, plus action sequences that in some way advance the plot and characterization and story. People just sit up and respond to it so enthusiastically and it makes you realize how benumbed we actually are by blockbuster action spectacles that don't do those two things in which the last 20 minutes is just like a blur of crashes
1: and we don't care and we just want to go home or maybe I'm mm-hmm, just speaking yeah. for myself. I have to confess that I contributed to Mission Impossible's box office by buying more than one ticket to it this weekend because I accidentally bought a ticket in 4DX, which is the, like, rockety seat, like, thrill oh, ride yeah. Version. I saw you <laughs> tweeting about
2: that, and I wanted to know more about Where, it. Where, like,
1: wind puffs on you and, like, water sprays on you <laughs> and, like, stuff. And I, I, I kind of went in dubiously to the theater and was like, oh, I guess. And then they have a little intro video at the beginning that explains... You know, demo some of the qualities of the chair. And I like hadn't had enough to eat and was feeling a little nauseous and just was like, fuck no. I'm like leaving. I'm gonna go get dinner. I'm gonna come back and watch a six, Oh, a so you M3D. didn't do the sense around? I didn't do it. It was too overwhelming. But I think we should do 4D X as a topic sometime because I would if I were prepared and had like eaten enough solid food I would sit through it for you. Oh, my God. I would
2: 100% have taken that ticket and sat in that chair. Oh, my God. It (laughs) was
1: repulsive. I felt like I was being jolted. And if it was distracting, because there was like an exciting motorcycle thing happening on screen. And I was like, well, what's my chair going to do? Like I was not immersed. I was
0: pulled out of it. (laughs) Oh, my God. They've revived smell-o-vision. I I want to be
1: spritzed with Eau
2: de Tom Cruise. They (laughs) literally tell you there's going to be fog. There's going
1: to be fog in the theater. um anyway we got to do that as a topic sometime absolutely
0: okay mission impossible fallout it is trust me at a theater near you we really liked it uh go see it tell us what you thought we'd be very curious to hear we're at facebook.com slash and on twitter okay moving on all right before we go any further i am suspecting that we have uh, business julia
1: we do. First up, we are thrilled to announce Slate Day, a live podcast experience produced in connection with the Texas Tribune Festival. You'll find our politically minded shows, Political Gabfest, Trumpcast, Amicus El Gabfest, and The Gist. Attendees will experience their favorite political podcasts live and will have unique opportunities to mingle with the hosts and fellow fans during our cocktail party and purchase exclusive merchandise at a Slate Day pop-up shop. Slate Day will take place at the Capitol Factory in downtown Austin, Texas, on Saturday, September 29th, in partnership with the Texas Tribune Festival. This is an intimate venue with limited seating, so go to slate.com live for tickets and information. Want to make a weekend of it? The Texas Tribune is offering $100 off festival badges to Slate Day ticket holders. We'll have a link on our event page to learn more about the festival. Dana, you have an update, I think.
2: Yes. I just wanted to let our listeners know that last week I was a guest host on the Mom and Dad Are Fighting podcast, Slate's Great Parenting podcast. As I was walking out of this taping last week, our producer asked me, hey, would you like to do Mom and Dad Are Fighting sometime? I said, sure, that'd be great. He said, how about tomorrow? So I was conscripted (laughs) despite my lack of parenting expertise. And it was a really, really great conversation with Gabe Roth and Carvel Wallace, two of the regular hosts of the show, answering listener questions about parenting. And, uh, And I learned a lot and it was fun. The name of the episode that I guest on is the guy in a gorilla suit edition. So if you're not already a mom and dad Are fighting listener, I recommend that you put it on your podcast lineup.
1: And in Slate Plus today, we'll be talking about our Slate cover story this week, The Abortions We Don't Talk About, in which, among other people, Dana and I talk about the abortions we don't usually talk about. And now we will talk about talking about them for Slate Plus. I got lots more to say. <laughs> I actually do, too. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program and is a great way to support us. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And, of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today.
0: Okay, onward. Fortnite combines elements of treasure hunt scavenging with world building, but in the end it is a third-person shooter in the battle royale mode. 100 internet-linked players are airdropped onto a deserted island and fight it out uncooperatively lone wolf style until only one survives. It's said to be the most popular video game on the planet right now. Joining us to discuss it is Slate's own Dantea Price. Hey, welcome to the show.
3: Hello. Thanks for having me on the Gap Fest.
1: Dante Islade's Gamer-in-Chief here to explain to us deeply non-gaming people what to make of Fortnite. <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about our experience within the game? I have some questions for you about uh, the game and what makes it fun and like what makes a session of Fortnite particularly satisfying. So first of all, I would like to point out that Fortnite and Mission Impossible Fallout uh, are similarly structured in that you basically start in a, uh aerial vehicle. I guess it's not a plane in Fortnite. You're in some kind of like hot air balloon school bus in the sky. And then you airdrop into your destination, which is not a packed French club, but um, a sort of treasure-mappy, ye olde-looking island and you pick a place and you drop down and you get mysterious messages about how the storm's eye is closing in three minutes and then you land and if you're me you're like huh okay I landed now what and I tried to build some stuff I couldn't make anything go and I pushed all the buttons and like blueprints popped up but nothing happened and I was not sure if I was trying to build a shelter from the storm that was coming and then uh I was like, well, this is boring, and I tried to learn how to run, and I couldn't figure it out. Did and you see then, other
2: people? Because when I was in there, it was just a solo landscape. No, I was just
1: like alone on a golf course under a darkening sky. <laughs> That's good gaming. I'm um, trying to build something. And I was like, okay, I think I've gotten this wrong. Maybe I should be trying to shoot someone. Um, and then it was like, you died. You came in ninth. And I was like, all I did was sit on this golf tee. <laughs> and it was like, you came in ninth of 85 people. And I was like, well, what were the other, you know, 40, 74 crazy. people doing? And there's
2: a scroll on the side <laughs> saying what all these other people, right, the other handles are doing. And I, I I, for one, could never find them or interact with them in any way. Right.
1: And so then, okay, so then once you die, you get to watch some other. It seemed like I was then getting to watch some other people finish. And I was like, oh, okay, these people are running around rather than standing in place trying to build things that won't build. And they... Constantly seem to be cutting down trees and buildings like they're constantly taking out axes and cudgels and like destroying structures. So the next game, I also I stopped trying to build things, I learned how to run slowly. Um, and then I started destroying structures, at which point logs began to be deposited into some kind of receptacle. And um, and then I drowned in a lake. And then I tried it a few more times, and I eventually got near some other people. And I try. I I wasn't sure. I was Battle Royale in solo mode, so I guess I was supposed to try to kill them all. But it seemed like when I was watching other people uh, play the game at the end, which is sort of how I felt like I learned at least a little bit what the game was supposed to be, they weren't trying to kill each other. So it seemed possible to have friends in Battle Royale, but I couldn't tell what those friends would be. And then some of those people had very ornate things on their backs like shields or unicorn backpacks. And then I realized that it would seem strange <laughs> that I couldn't pick pick my character. And then it seemed like, oh, I would get a character automatically, but if I wanted to pick or customize any of these things, I would have to pay money. Like I would have to buy my unicorn backpack or buy being my own gender or whatever else in this world. And then I began to see anyone else in the world as like a gigantic chump who had spent their money on a fake backpack. And then I thought I better just get Dante <laughs> to explain this to me. So that was my experience of Fortnite. What was I doing wrong?
3: <laughs> you should have bought the backpack. <laughs> you should not have bought the backpack.
2: Uh,
1: no, the, the in-app purchases
2: are the worst thing about this game. The, the, the constant thrusting of different expensive in-app purchases the, on the you. Unic- it,
1: anybody who has a unicorn backpack in Fortnite is a chump. True or false? False. Oh, shit. Why, how could you have a unicorn backpack and not be a chump?
3: Uh, because there is a large percentage of players who paid zero dollars for that, they just played it a lot.
1: I see they gave their labor rather than their money.
3: Indeed. If I if I may, I can tell you where you went wrong the first time you please, landed. Please, please help me. Uh, you landed in a part of the map that is kind of sparse on the resources that you need, but you also didn't know you needed resources. Uh, this is the Minecrafty element of Fortnite. You landed with a pickaxe. And you weren't really sure what that was about, but you should have started hitting things. And if you had hit walls (laughs) or items or trees or uh, mailboxes, trash cans, whatever, you would have accrued resources in kind of your endless quantum pocket supply of resources. Uh, And from there, you could have used those blueprints to build walls and stairs. So my problem was that
1: I didn't have any logs yet when I was trying to build the first time. And then in the second time, when I got all the logs, I drowned before I tried to build anything. And that was where I went wrong.
3: Correct. And when you died, you uh, sort of mind melded with the individual who killed you. And you started watching the game from their angle. (sighs) Oh, whoa. I didn't
1: realize that was what was happening.
0: Am I right in thinking that something about the combination of world building and building out a world and scavenged hunting combined with, um, you know, the Battle Royale element or what make this somewhat unique? Is it unique? I'm very curious to hear your opinion.
3: Uh, Fortnite both is and is not unique. It is a the style of game. The Battle Royale itself is not new. Fortnite just happens to be. Infinitely more popular than any of its predecessors. Uh, it is somehow the right combination of pretty colors and Minecraft and shooting strangers that just makes it a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's available. Just the simple pleasures. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is, it just takes a bunch of aspects of previous games and then it adds Epic's own flair to it. It's free to play, which makes it much more accessible than games that you may have to pay $20, $40, $60 for. Um, but it also isn't unique, I guess. I wrote, I wrote one piece about it a few months back that just sort of tackled this for, through the lens of a, a New Yorker piece on Fortnite. It, it is just the latest it game. It has held on to the title a little longer than some other games maybe, but, uh, we're kind of at the Fortnite is now just part of the cultural conversation level mm-hmm. of things. Can you talk a little bit about what makes an
1: It game? I mean, I think our regular listeners know that we only tackle games when they reach It game status. We somehow didn't do Minecraft, which was a mistake. I think that feels like one that we probably should have tried to tackle. Um, but Fortnite certainly seems so prevalent and widespread that it has percolated beyond the realm of like the game that gamers are talking about to the game that everyone is talking about. But what, what are the qualities in a game that make a game a true phenomenon
3: in this way? Um, if, If I knew the definitive answer to that, I would be a millionaire. But there seems to be some sort of... The game has to be fun on its face. The game has to be fun or it has to be noteworthy. It needs to be able to be accessed on, you know, as many platforms as possible, like Fortnite is. Fortnite is currently available on PCs, Macs, PS4s. Xboxes, I think they're available on the Switch, they are currently available on the iPhone, and they will soon be available on Android phones. There aren't many games that can tackle every single platform possible in that regard. Uh, there, it was popular among players of the predecessor to Fortnite, uh, Player Unknown Battlegrounds, which was free, kind of janky, a lot of fun. Uh, but then there's just sort of some catalyzing event that sends the game out of the, you know, normal, I guess, gamer realm into things that my parents know about. And that was probably when Drake decided to play Fortnite earlier this year with a Twitch streamer. Oh, it's Drake's fault. (laughs) It's it's maybe a little bit Drake's fault. And then everyone just sort of hopped on it because suddenly Drake an a rather famous individual decided he was playing this free game. Uh, and, you know, celebrities do play games, but watching Drake play it live with hundreds of thousands of people watching just made it a little more, I guess, salient. So now everyone everyone knows about Fortnite. You know about Fortnite. Your kids know about Fortnite. Your dentist knows about Fortnite. And if you say, hey, I play video games, first question anyone asks you is, hey, do you play Fortnite? My experience of being
2: inside that world was that it was very lonely. I don't understand what you would have to do. What's the social aspect of playing this game? Like, is it possible to form alliances or is it really just hunger games? Just kill everybody you see until you're the last one standing. I guess I don't see the point of it being a social game and there being real other people playing it if they're just people that you're supposed to eliminate, because then they could
3: just be, you know, virtual bots. This, I think, is a personal limitation of the solo version of battle royale which i assume if you tried it this is what you tried Um, i assume so yeah because that was the free version right uh, the free version allows you to play in solos duos or squads and you can opt to uh, have the game match you with another player who is online at the same time i
1: thought about that but i was just like i can't inflict my complete incomprehension of this game on some other person Like, whoever else is in this game and wants to be in a squad would be so sad to end up in a squad with me.
2: I was actually imagining gamers texting each other laughingly about Murgox88, which was the name I made up for myself. Because it has to be complete nonsense because there are so many names taken already. It's such a popular game. Really? I got Ms. Julia
1: Turner. Oh, well, fancy. Put Ms. in front of your name and you can get anything. It's a secret. I guess I
2: somehow didn't want to be myself in that universe. But... So yeah, so Murgox eight 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 got got killed very quickly, and I was just imagining all these other gamers snickering in their in their text threads about who this lame Murgox person was, who just sort of came in with a pickaxe and sat around jumping until they died. <laughs>
3: Well, in in Solo, I wouldn't worry about that at all, because none of those players probably know each other, and they were all after one thing, to be the very last person on the map. As I was making my way through this,
2: this lonely universe, seeing no one, I was just scribbling down meaningless-to-me phrases that popped up on the screen, and I, just, I have to read a couple of them here, because I feel like they all have sort of symbolic weight and, and could be used in many circumstances. The first one was the pop-up request to manage epic friends, which I feel like <laughs> is such a, a moving request that we should all be trying to do each day. I know my friends are epic, and I hope to manage them well. Another was a moment after my character had already died, or eliminated herself, as it says on the screen, when randomly up on the side, I saw the news that Joe Mama eliminated crack porn with a rifle. (laughs) Good to know in your gaming process. And finally, there was a point when I was, I think, trying to build something, Julia, as you were, and and clicking on something that I thought would enable that, and I kept getting the flashing sign, unable to edit buildings. (laughs) Which again is just good life advice. Stop trying to edit buildings; it's not just not going to work.
1: I'll never try. I'll never stop, Dana. I'll never stop. It's the editor in you.
0: I mean, isn't this what's just completely mesmerizing about this game? And in fact, why it's touched a nerve is all the reasons Dana Stevens doesn't like it. Is you know the reason all the you know. All the lonely people, all the Eleanor Rigby's out there, and fanboys out there, and gearheads dig it. Is is it's kind of, it's it's desolation is is somehow c- incredibly seductive. I mean, that was what I picked up watching this friend of mine play it for an hour. Or so it was just the world just reeks of isolation and loneliness, and um, and as you say, it's about. I, or let me put this in the form of a question. Does it say anything at all about us in our cultural moment that this is about, uh, that it's a battle royale, a lone wolf, you know, scenario where there's no cooper? I mean, the mo- isn't the most popular version of it the un- least cooperative version where essentially you're a loner, a lone wolf, and you're out to kill all the other lone wolves and then um, lay, you know, uh, undisputed claim to what was from the beginning a completely sterile wasteland.
3: Yeah, you are one of, you know, 95 to 100 people attempting to kill 95 to 100 people just to emote in a barren field when it's all over. Um, emote in a barren field, <laughs> <It's> so sad. <laughs> but at the same time, do did you have this exact same question when Battle Royale the movie became popular? or when the Hunger Games became popular or when Mad Max Fury Road became popular because it's kind of the same well, they sort of the same.
0: Yeah, but they're also sort of the same cultural moment, right? I mean, it's I maybe it's taking a little bit of the broad view or the kind of cop-out Zeitgeisty think PC uh, view to say that, you know, we've sort of been in a c- cultural moment since around the turn of the millennium, but you know, this is popularity of a different order and and um and it's interactive in a different way do you see an opportunity to you know draw a kind of think piece like a uh, conclusion from it
3: oh i th- i think there are many conclusions to be drawn from playing fortnite it's it is it is alluring and it is you know it it's a it's a really sexy battle royale game i mean The polygons aside, you know, it's it's fun. It's fast. It's bright. It's loud. Uh, I don't play solo very often. When I chose to play Fortnite, I attempted to rope in as many friends as possible because I don't like being that lonely. Can you just briefly
1: describe what it's like to play with a squad? Because I think that I think that might cause you to draw a different social lesson.
3: I can tell you a little bit about playing with strangers, which is, for me, not a whole lot of fun. Uh, I have the opportunity to communicate via headset with whoever else happens to be filled into my squad. I'm not very good at Fortnite. I'm, like, really not very good at Fortnite. And they get frustrated with me. Uh, They get frustrated with each other. They get frustrated with the map. Uh, sometimes they get frustrated with me because I'm a girl. Uh, but when I play with my friends whom I have all known, I've known all my gaming friends for years, you know, we play multiple games together. We have a lot of uh, intragame cooperation. Uh, we work very well together, we watch each other's backs, and we have fun on the map. Uh, and we we just it's it's a fun time, whether we last for thirty seconds or five minutes. I I haven't really lasted much longer in a Fortnite match than that.
1: Do Do you all pick one part of the map to go to and go there together and like cover each other, you know, and, you know, pose in doorways and hold your gun and wave people through? Or do you like divide and conquer and each take a different part of the map and then talk to each other while you're doing that? And how much when you're talking during the game, are you talking about what you're doing in the game? And how much is it like book club and you're like chatting about like real estate and who's getting married, but you just happen to be like destroying trees?
3: I found when I solo queue into a random set of people for a squad, uh, each person puts down a pin on the map, and eventually all of us converge on one of these points. Uh, very rarely do you split up the squad because although your ultimate placement in the match depends on when the very last person in your squad dies, it helps when you're all together. And then we try to land on, you know, different buildings or the same building. And if if we're not communicating via voice chat, we're just attempting to do our own thing. Uh, maybe cover each other's backs if you see someone is taking fire. When I play with my friends, we do a round robin like, oh, now it's Dantea's turn to pick a pleasant park for the landing zone. And, you know, we we joke and we laugh as we glide in. We find items. We call them out. We meet up. We trade. And then we keep running to the eye of the storm, shooting, building. Uh, we, it's It's like half and half, really.
1: All right. This is so fun. Thank you for explaining this. I also just love the meteorological world that Fortnite takes place in, which is like a constantly opening and closing storm eye aperture. Like somehow there's just a stationary hurricane over this island that like contracts and expands like it's doing Kegel exercises like on top of this (laughs) island. Like
2: (laughs) Maybe they're on Jupiter where there's been that storm going on
1: for 500 years or something. Like just what is going on? Like the I I would love to, if you could play this game to the level where you got to see like the weather report of this island, I would be pretty excited.
3: <laughs> I guess, Well, <laughs> you've really just capitalized on one of the things that makes it so popular. It's the mystery. Uh, you don't know why you're on this island. You don't know why. You spawn somewhere. You get on a flying battle bus. You glide in. You fight. The map has changed as the year has gone on, um, and that is, that is something that people like. They like trying to investigate the mystery. So maybe this is the social lesson to the desolation. They want to know know what happened. They want to know what will happen. And playing the game seems like the best way to figure it out.
0: Yeah, with a few thrill kills thrown in along the way. I love it. All right, Dante, I thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about uh, Fortnite. It was a joy to listen to you describe it.
1: You are so patient and kind to us.
3: (laughs) It was was my pleasure. If (laughs) any of you want to grab a round on PC, uh, you know where to find me. Uh, I
1: do want to play with some people I know someday. I will find. I will try to find a PC and make that happen. Be hurtling out of a purple bus in the sky.
0: I have one last thing to observe here, which is that you could take everything Dante has said in the course of this segment, write it out, transcript style, giving it teasing line breaks, and publish it as a poem in the New Yorker.
1: <laughs> give it. <laughs> give it a shot. Let's do it.
0: All right, well, in lieu of writing a little intro to this segment, um, one just has to read from this incredible Times Magazine profile of Goop and Gwyneth Paltrow. It's written by Taffy Brodesser ackner and and Twitter alerts me that she's just done you know magnificent work lately, and this this profile really is incredible. So I mean, I practically at random I picked this paragraph. Before we knew it, the wellness point of view had invaded everything in our lives. Summer solstice sales are wellness. Yoga in the park is wellness. Yoga at work is wellness, and she goes on and on all the examples of it. Goop's first newsletter left. GP's kitchen in 2008. That's Gwyneth Paltrow, if you didn't know. Right when the economy was collapsing around us. It wasn't just the homes people no longer owned and the jobs people no longer had. It was the environmental crisis. It was the endless exposure of corruption. Whom exactly were we trusting with our care? Why did we decide to trust them in the first place? Who says that only certain kinds of people are allowed to give us the answers? Julia, this is an incredible piece of journalism, in my estimation, for bringing together a a kind of, you know, a poignant sensitivity to the cultural moment that produced Goop. Um, It has what journalists call great scenes. The scenes of her having dinner with Gwyneth Paltrow are priceless. Um, the, The tonal control of this piece, it's a sense of relevance, even though one would think going back to making fun of Goop would be trivial, but it's about how making fun of goop has made goop goop. Um, it's uh, terrifically good, but you read it as a magazine editor, so I'm just curious where um, where you began with it.
1: Well, I feel like I should disclose fully that when we were planning our topics for this week, uh, this piece was much buzzed about, and we thought about doing it, and then I negged it, because I was like, I can tell that piece is gonna be great, But, you know, we've already done all those great Katie Weaver profiles, like at a certain point, you can only have so many conversations about the celebrity profile with access. Is it still a thing? Can it still be done in a fun way? Yay, what fun a good profile is, how sad it is that there are so few. Um, And I was not counting on all of the capital I ideas and capital T themes that would be in this piece, which was a joy to read, just an amazing piece of writing and thinking and expression and I really can't recommend it highly enough. I thought it was word perfect and uh, utterly delightful. Um, But also raises really interesting points, I think, about what exactly is the nature of the appeal of goop and its particular brand of expensive pseudoscience uh, and what is at the heart of what makes Gwyneth Paltrow as a cultural figure so compelling and polarizing. Uh, And, yeah, so I I loved it. I loved it, and I uh, don't love Goop, but I am compelled by it.
0: Dana, it seems to me, uh, for t- twenty years at least, but you could argue fifty years, going back to Gay Talese's one way to do a profile of a celebrity to whom you may have limited access, though that wasn't the problem here, not at all, but about whom you might have ambivalent feelings, is to sort of sub, you know, like there's a subcutaneous layer of snark to your prose that one would have a hard time, you know, pointing to a specific phrase or, or, or you know, turn a phrase or, or overt insult, identifying, but sort of there throughout. She didn't take that tack in this. In fact, the piece has this heavily autobiographical element in which she's getting at how a culture of aspiration makes ordinary people feel, which is, of course, the essence of Goop and Gwyneth Paltrow, this totally extraordinary human being with unlimited amounts of uh, money behind her and um, born into privilege, um, presuming to be kind of a paradigmatic you know, ideal for people is kind of absurd. And instead of spoofing Gwyneth Paltrow even subtly, instead she goes, you know this other route, which is really talking about how, like shit, something like Goop or Gwyneth can make one feel, um, you know, and what the what the ethos of aspiration uh, does to us. What would you make of this?
2: Yeah, that what you're talking about right now, the kind of autobiographical almost stunt that Taffy Ackner pulls off in this piece. I did learn a lot about Goop and Gwyneth Paltrow and the wellness movement and also how this whole goop, you know, media empire she's created has changed and grown from this small newsletter that she sent out essentially of, of recipes and tips into, you know, this giant shopping empire and sort of desire-creating empire that it is now. That was all fascinating. But I was just so impressed by the the writerly virtuosity of Taffy brodesser Ackner being able to insert herself, her own body, her own family, her own story into this piece without, in the least, making it sort of narcissistic or or veering off topic in order to talk about herself. She really did, uh, in a very funny and self-deprecating way, talk about how this encounter with this person who seems to exist on this other plane, right, this other plane of, of wellness and, uh, and cushiness and sort of to have essentially no problems to solve, as she tells us all how to solve our own, how that leaves her feeling like, you know, this this mess whose feet are size 10 boats that shoes won't fit into. And this wonderful passage at the end that describes how she and, and Gwyneth sneak this one cigarette together, because I guess Gwyneth allows herself one cigarette a year or something. And so they have this little moment of smoking together at Gwyneth in its perfect, pristine house. And then afterwards, the author just gets addicted to cigarettes again and is walking down the street smoking and hating herself. (laughs) Read it. Read it. It's so good. Let me find it. I said, don't you see? The last cigarette she had was in February, sitting on the floor next to her chimney with me. It was June. I smoked now. I walked down the street sucking on cigarettes the way I did in my youth. I recently got into bed with my poor son, and he told me that I, quote, smell like the city, unquote, She doesn't understand it. She doesn't think she's perfect. She is the way she is because of hard work. How could people hate her for that? It's just hard work. It's just intention. The content is free and it's all right there. Go to her website. Do some meditation. Just eat more produce. Take some time for yourself. Hydrate. (laughs) <laughs> and she goes on in this mode and the very last scene of the of the entire profile is the author guzzling down all this special water, this goop water that's infused with rose quartz crystals so that it'll give you more energy and focus, trying to, you know, hydrate herself into wellness. And then she gets on a plane and has desperately to go to the bathroom and for various reasons can't. So the entire end of the piece is her just racing desperately to find some place to pee. Anyway, I mean, th- to me, that is just it's both high comedy and it's really wonderful satire that actually illuminates yeah. something about about the way we relate to these lifestyle products.
1: I also love how she engages with the, the she engages by not engaging with the pseudoscience of of goop like every time she's describing one of the ludicrous claims she says something like the water with crystals that something something adaptogens and she just uses the phrase (laughs) something something
2: kudos to her editor for letting those bits get through with the something something i feel like i'm not going to name names but there are publications that would insist on elucidating that something something and it's just so
1: beautifully evocative and does everything it needs to do she's on fire this writer right now
0: Uh, absolutely and and it's just the difference between confidence and arrogance, right? It's like she's just a, a writer, completely feeling her own prerogative, the rightness of her own prerogative as and sensibility as a writer, and her editor trusting her. You're exactly right, Dana. Um, it's an incredible piece of journalism. It's so easy to score points against Gwyneth Paltrow, and she there are no easy points scored in here at all. And uh, Julia, am I right? I mean, I just it's the poignancy. Like the turn, turning point, the big for me, the big turning point in the piece is when there's discussion of having a third child, which neither woman has done, neither the profile nor Gwyneth Paltrow, and what that loss might mean. And it's this kind of human or pseudo human moment between them, but kind of, but but Gwyneth goops it by sort of making her feel strangely guilty for this ghost child, this third ghost child that she hasn't had, Um, and that feeling of kind of. You know, melancholy as it's bound up in aspiration is such a powerful part of the piece, but but also humor. Let me re- just read a sentence. She goes, they're in the kitchen and Gwyneth Paltrow is having a bourbon on the rocks and making a perfect dinner, even though there's a sort of sommelier butler hovering in the background, an ex-husband rock star, a husband-to-be, you know, film producer, um, who one doesn't even need to, need to Google image search to know exactly what he looks like. And... Um, and uh, and um, I think Apple, or one of the kids, Coldplay kids, picks up a guitar and begins playing exquisite rendition of Paul McCartney's Blackbird. Um, and um, at one point after the scene is over, the writer says, yes, I thought about my children, only one of whom might shake your hand while the other would sooner spit on it, though they will both reliably do an elaborate orchestration of armpit farting while I'm trying to hear myself. Think. <laughs> and she just, it, she just, it's, just it's like there are so many ways to be better than me that make me fucking hate you and i read this and i was like this woman is so good and so much better than me and i love that she fucking exists it's just a great 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 right there's a certain pathos
1: of aspiration in in, in uh, for journalists reading this piece right because taffy Brodesser ackner is painting herself as the oafish giant footed clown and I can say this is a size 12 to her size 11 uh you know smoking clown who drinks rose quartz water and then has to Piss it out of her grotesque body like a human, and doesn't live on some astral plane. Like when and then, of course, like our relationship as journalists to this piece is like fuck. Mm-hmm. fuck. For, it, for us, she's the one she cooking sh- without an apron in yeah. a perfect
2: designer gown. Yeah, she
1: should. She like she didn't splash any clam juice on her in this profile. Then think of the striving, overthought, s- scientific debunks that could have been grotesquely smeared on here like a blob of mayonnaise on a shirt uh, that are not here. Like there's a certain um, Beauty to that, to to the the excellence, the just sheer Gwyneth level, uh, astral plane excellence with which she describes her own, um, slovenliness, and anyway, so that's a fun note. I mean, I I'm curious to hear what you guys make though of the actual argument here, and there is an argument that isn't gongingly put forth, but subtly elucidated through deliciously hilarious details about aspiration and about this particular brand of Luxe New Age aspiration that Gwyneth is peddling, um, which suggests that part of what, let me apply the gong here, uh, part of what bedevils people in their relationship to Gwyneth and and that makes her such a subject of hate and controversy is this underlying lie that you could do it too, you know, that like you could... You could, you face frustrations of any working mom, uh, and I think that's part of the pathos of going to saying, "Yeah, hey, maybe think about having that third kid while you can." It's like, well, having a third kid when you're a gajillionaire with an ex husband and a current fiance who like get along and share a home and a but a house manager butler dude is a different proposition than having a third kid when, when you don't have all those things. Um, and pretending that it, a set of individual choices can result in an outcome and ignoring all of the structural and systemic actualities of life uh, is just part of what's galling. Is that mm-hmm. how's my gong bang? Can we all take and yet, another crack? And yet,
2: no, that's really well put. But I guess my question would be: as a non-follower of Goop, like Goop only gets to me. It's like Fortnite. Like I only hear about it when something so outrageous happens on that newsletter or in Gwyneth's, you know, relationship with her public that it sort of breaks breaks through the to the mainstream. But isn't that the entire? Isn't Goop sort of a hate read? Isn't that kind of the appeal of it? I mean, doesn't it have something to do with the keeping up with the Kardashians feeling of
1: like? At least I'm not this shallow. Well, there's an amazing doubleness. Mm-hmm. Like I think it cultivates both audiences at once uh, in an amazing way. I think there. I mean, people go to these conferences. They stick jade eggs up their vagina. They they buy serums and powders and t- talcs and ponchos and whatever you know. Like the the it's quite successful as a business from people who sincerely want what it's selling, and then also the knowingness of its voice and its slight ability to uh, mock itself the, the earth to Gwyneth cover line was cited um but like I when I encounter it I both think this is ridiculous also what an amazing businesswoman also I kind of want that like mm-hmm. I, I read it on all the levels when I when I encounter it
0: but there we should say there was one piece of sort of news broken by the um, by this article which is that goop had partnered uh, tentatively with Conde Nast and in order to put out, a, you know, their mag, a print version of their magazine, and the partnership ended in part, says the author of this piece, because there was just ordinary magazine fact checking going on, and Gwyneth was apparently quite surprised by this and said, "No, I mean, we don't fact check anything, and in, in fact, they have a company line. Goop has a company line, whereas they're just asking people for their opinions. These, these, you know." woo-woo experts who come in and say, you know, put this in this orifice or whatever and you'll be happy. And um, and, um, and so it, it, the, it raises the question how much of their readership is able to read on two to three different levels of credulity simultaneously in order to join it. I think the business model assumes that there's a mass of readerships who read it on one entirely credulous level. And she gets, I think, very deftly and very simply at the ultimate credulity when GP says aspirational, um, she wasn't kidding. Her business depended on no one ever being able to be her, though I guess it also depended on their ability to think they might. I mean, just so the feather touch there is, you know, the number of words I would have taken to try to get at that thought, um, and it just, it just very well done.
1: All right, well, let's all sign up for Taffy's aspirational journal newsletter. <laughs> Can't wait for her multi-billion dollar business.
0: All right, well, the um, the article that we've uh, ululated over is called The Big Business of Being Gwyneth Paltrow in the New York Times Magazine. Of course, we'll link to it on our website. All right, moving on. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dan...
2: All right. I have a couple things today. One is a sort of callback to the summer Strut show from last week, which is that uh, I believe that I mentioned one of Suggy Otis's songs from the from the lineup and said that he was an old favorite of mine. And I mentioned that in the context of thanking people for sending in older music, that it was great to hear, you know, the, the hits of previous summers. But I actually misspoke. The person who sent in that song wrote to me and said, well, that is actually from a new album that Shuggy Otis just came out with in 2018, which is an incredibly exciting development that I Whoa. didn't know about. I didn't even know he was still making music so the new album is called Interfusion I've just started sampling bits of it uh, but it seems great and, and a new direction for him as you might have heard in the sample that was played last week so one of my endorsements is the new Suggy Otis album Interfusion and we'll put a link to that on the show page And the other is inspired by our Tom Cruise segment. Since we were talking about Tom Cruise's unkillability in the Mission Impossible series, I just had to mention a movie written by Christopher McQuarrie, the writer-director of this new Mission Impossible movie, in which Tom Cruise does die, but he comes back to life, and he keeps on dying and coming back to life over and over again, and it's one of the best Tom Cruise vehicles of all time. It's called The Edge of Tomorrow. Is
0: that a Doug Lyman joint?
2: It is, Doug Lyman was the director, Christopher McCorry was the screenwriter, uh, Doug Lyman, of course, being the director of the first born movie, The Born Identity. And uh, it has a little bit of the born toughness, but it's also got a sci-fi apocalyptic time travel Mobius strip kind of angle that I don't want to say too much about because the movie handles it super well. I mean, I think as well as, as um, I think the time travel angle is as interestingly handled as, as the one in Looper. I really, really love Edge of Tomorrow. And somehow we missed talking about it on the show. I never reviewed it. It was just a movie that I saw well, after it came out, and was really impressed by it, in this same mode of the kind of ridiculous yet thoroughly enjoyable action blockbuster. So, Edge of Tomorrow with Tom Cruise, my other endorsement.
0: I was just talking to a friend about that movie, which I missed, and he insists is terrific. So now I'm, I'm in, I'm all in. Julia, what do you have?
1: I have a, an unendorsement, a double-edged endorsement, a request for, <sighs> um, for, for. It, A replacement, uh, a call to listeners. Let me just explain what I'm talking about. On our recent family vacation, we spent a lot of time with my children controlling what we listened to. And we listened to two texts, the short list about the revolution and the long list about the revolution, a.k.a. the Schoolhouse Rocks American History album and the Hamilton soundtrack. Schoolhouse Rocks being the short list, Hamilton soundtrack being the long list. Don't know why those became the titles. We can talk about Hamilton as a text for children another day and the fact that it is, like, absolutely the Les Mis of my children's growing up and, like, they're fucking singing about Lafayette all the time now. Fine. Lovely, actually. The, I hadn't really listened to that album in a couple of years when they discovered it, and it's so good. I mean, I, all of the Johnny-come-lately-Hamilton grimacers and haters could go to hell. Like, I
2: agree, and it's the best travel music. It makes a, a car ride go by in a second.
1: I, like, I am... I am like the backlash to the Lin Manuel backlash. Like fuck it, that guy is so talented. Let him let him fucking publish a book of his tweets. Fine, good, great. Do it. Take your take your sneering and go somewhere else. Schoolhouse Rocks. I did not grow up with the Schoolhouse Rocks American History. We started by playing No More Kings, both the Schoolhouse Rock version and the Pavement cover of it, which I strongly recommend. Um, but if you listen to the whole album, which I never really had. It is both an incredibly useful civic text, like it, whatever you think of how America has lived up to its values over time, which I think we on the show can all agree that it never has, the idea of what it's supposed to be seems like one that we should be teaching our children about and the notion of an album that attempts to teach children what the values are and what the American idea is seems to me like one that might be valuable now. But this particular album has a bunch of songs in it that are like so fucked in their view of American history and so dated and makes you realize how uh, much more there is to do and how much we need a new Schoolhouse Rocks of American history for children in the 20 teens. Because so many of these songs are, sorry to use this word, but Problematic as hell, like the the Great American Melting Pot, is a song that posits that a bunch of d- descendant of European children should all get along with each other because each of them is equally entitled to America, and mentions American Indians not at all, like never are they mention. There's no, it, it's just fucking gone. On is there any slavery or history of black americans in there nope race is just completely gone from it in this way that sounds ludicrous now um and so what do you play like where a schoolhouse rocks but with an appropriate sense of america's troubled racial history for kids of 2018 that's what i want Uh, Lin-Manuel, get on it, or somebody else. Listeners, if you have suggestions, recommendations for fun civic texts that actually represent our sense of American history now, uh, that would be helpful. And weirdly, Hamilton, although watching it kind of radicalizes your sense of race in American history, just listening to it as an album, it's not particularly about race or slavery either. And is actually more conservative as a listening experience in its kind of great man, bootstrapsy ethos than it is as a viewed experience. So it's a call to action. It's a lament. It's definitely not an endorsement, sorry. Can um, we still
2: salvage the grammar songs, though? I can't give up on the grammar
1: songs. Sure. I, I mean, like I said, I didn't grow up with Schoolhouse Rock, so I don't know any of these albums, so maybe we'll switch over to that.
0: Julia, I'll help make up for your deficit there because um, I have four endorsements this oh, week. Oh,
1: God. Okay. Do it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: all right so we'll just call this one endorsement with three like you know little appetizers um so here are the appetizers the first is that i don't know if i've endorsed this before i don't think i have i set you on the right path towards pie i'm now going to do it with ice cream i live near an orchard in kinderhook new york it's right off of route nine that you should go that way instead of the taconic because then you can pull off at kinderhook go to some mascot orchard. The reason to go there is their ice cream windows open till 9 p.m. on summer nights through the fall a little bit and they make their own fruit ice cream. It is the best fruit ice cream I've ever had. Therefore, the best ice cream I've ever had. Some mascot orchards, Kinderhook, New York. I'm telling you, do this. You will not be disappointed. Secondly, quick follow-up. This is not an endorsement either. It's follow-up to last week's uh, summer strut i am so diggy, digging carolyn rose the album is loner it's so good uh talk to me about it find me on social media hit me up hmu on social media i want to hear uh, if you love carolyn rose and why because i absolutely do thirdly julia microwaves yes or no
1: Ooh, I'm in such a big fight with my mom about this, so I don't have a microwave in my New York City kitchen, and um, she's always like, get a microwave, how do you ever do anything? And I'm like, you can just heat it up in a pot and pan. Like, right, right, All right,
0: right, right, swipe bah. left, swipe left, swipe left. <laughs> D- Dana Stevens, microwave, yes or no?
1: Yes, I
2: can't imagine functioning without one.
0: <laughs> okay, this is addressed to you then. Julia, you can take off your headset. Um, it. T- have you ever poached an egg in a microwave?
2: No, and I love poached eggs,
1: tell me more.
0: It's a fucking life changer. Take a little ramekin, microwave-safe ramekin, one half Wait, cup of I water. Wait, can I come back?
1: I love any sentence with the word ramekin in it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, headset back on. Uh, 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 half a cup of water in a ramekin. Crack the eggs so that the albumin remains intact as best you can in the microwave. Depending on the power of the microwave, on my microwave, 45 seconds to 55 seconds you get a perfectly poached egg under one minute you're welcome but that's not my endorsement either <laughs> we managed to do a segment but there's more mission...
2: this is like a late night infomercial
0: <laughs> crazy eddie we, we managed to do a segment on mission impossible without mentioning one proper name i'm going to give you a shot at telling me what that proper name is dana you can get this on one try alec baldwin no, I'll give you two tries. The most distinctive thing about Mission Impossible, extending back to the TV show,
2: but his proper name.
0: Bum 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 bum. Oh, the Lalo bum, Schifrin bum, bum, theme, bum, of course. Bum. Yeah, yeah, of course. My, I love you. Yes, Lalo Schifrin, composer of um of the Mission Impossible theme song. The most distinctive thing about the reboot, other than giant latex on-command masks to fill in plot holes is the music by Lalo Schifrin. Lalo Schifrin made uh, uh, an arranged piece, a suite of music for Dizzy Gillespie, the great bebop uh, jazz trumpet player. It's on a two CD set called Gillespieana. It's probably on Spotify under that name too. Gillespieana is wonderful. It's one of my favorite pieces. I mean, like orchestral... You know, notated jazz is not exactly my jam, but this is such a great record. It really brings together these two geniuses. Um, uh, You should check it out. And that was my real endorsement. All right, uh, uh, Julia, thank you. Thanks, Steve. Uh, Dana, thanks. This was a fun one.
2: Yeah, good one, Steve. Thanks.
0: You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page at facebook.com slash culturefest. Our Twitter feed is at slatecultfest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our production assistant is Alex Barish. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll, We'll see you soon.